It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 153, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Ryan Thiessen farms four acres of vegetables in two locations at Creek Shore Farms in St. Catharines, Ontario. With 110 CSA members in the summer and 72 in the winter, as well as farmer's market sales, Creek Shore Farms provides a modest living for Ryan and his wife, Amanda. While Amanda has been full-time on the farm since it started in 2010, 2017 was Ryan's first year with farming as his only job. We talk about the challenges he encountered while making the transition and what he plans to do differently in 2018. Creekshore Farms is highly mechanized for a farm of its scale, and Ryan shares where and how he's made choices about mechanizing and how he's taken advantage of farming two properties as a way to organize what crops are raised using what methods. Ryan shares his, his adventures with two-wheeled Planet Junior cultivating tractors and how they revolutionized weed control at Creekshore Farms. We also dig into Creekshore Farms' focus on winter vegetables, including cropping practices, hoop-house adventures, and their storage, washing, and packing facility. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is generously supported by Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com And by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are versatile, maneuverable in tight spaces, lightweight for less compaction, and easy to maintain and repair on the farm. Gear-driven and built to last for decades of dependable service. BCSAmerica.com And by High Mowing Organic Seeds, the first independently owned, farm-based seed company, proudly serving professional organic growers with a full line of 100% certified organic and non-GMO project verified vegetable, herb, flower, and cover crop seeds. HighMowingSeeds.com slash Farmer to Farmer. Ryan Thiessen, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thanks, Chris. Glad to be here. So glad you could join us today. It's actually, I'll, I'll just make a note that you are here with me on the shortest day of the year, even though this won't come out for a couple of weeks after that. Yeah, I was, you know, I was doing uh, home deliveries this morning thinking about uh, you know, that it's the shortest day of the year and looking forward to uh, the days getting longer and doing some food catalog planning. Kind of interesting on a on a day length piece, and I'm going to ask you to tell us where you're located, and you're going to say, "Oh, we're in St. Catharines, Ontario." But it's worth noting that you're on exactly the same latitude as I am here in Madison, Wisconsin. Okay, no, I didn't know that, and I, I just didn't pay attention to it. But yeah, so we're in St. Catharines, Ontario, we're right in the heart of the uh, Niagara Fruit Belt, surrounded by mostly orchards and uh, vineyards. How much are you growing, and, and where are you selling that product? Well, we grow, uh, we own our farms two and a half acres, and uh, we rent an additional 2.8 acres uh, of that land. Uh, about four of it is in cultivation. Uh, this year, we, uh, we ran a 110-member summer CSA program, uh, 72-winter member program, and we went to the Welland Farmers Market. We're changing that as we go forwards. We're dropping the Welland Farmers Market, and we're going to be uh, directing all of our sales to here at our farm. We're in the middle of building a store on the farm, and uh, rather than take our product uh, off-site to a market, we're going to do everything in-house here. And uh, we'll grow pretty well every vegetable that uh, you can name, although I'm guessing most of your listeners could name a few that you don't grow. And uh, our specialty uh, in the area is doing winter vegetables. There's a number of CSAs that grow for summers. Um, and we do a big summer CSA, but we also do uh, 
a very robust winter that runs from about the first week of November right through to the end of February. Wow. And that's a weekly delivery during that time, right? Yeah, so we, we used to do a, uh, like a regular, called it the full share, and then a basic share. That was always tricky to manage. So starting this year, we do uh, a weekly share all winter, and we also do, for people that wanted the smaller box, uh, a bi-weekly share as well. That's uh, had really good response rates, especially since winter tends to be more storage crops. Um, people can definitely wait the two weeks between getting boxes. Yeah, but our full share members get a box every week all the way to the end of February, and I've always been keen to go further. Uh, I'd ideally like to go year-round, but March and April being the two hardest months of the year for us to grow. Now, when you say that you're in the Niagara Fruit Belt, you're on the south shore of Lake Ontario, just to the west of Niagara Falls, right? Yeah, we're about 20 minutes uh, west of Niagara Falls. We're on the western edge of St. Catharines. Um, and I can see the lake. Uh, it's property across the road from me is a lakefront property. So one interesting thing that does is uh, for our home farm property, it makes the falls, um, I usually get about a degree or two warmer in the fall compared to about five to eight kilometers away. But I'm also a degree or two cooler in the spring. So when, we, uh, when we're trying to pour our squash out of the fields at the rental farm, it's only a five-minute drive. Um, but shuttling back and forth, I can see the temperature on the van swing uh, one or two degrees, which is, I've always found that interesting. What kind of winter conditions are you farming in there? Does it get cold on the south shore of Lake Ontario? Um, I mean, probably not Wisconsin cold. Um, I, our typical winter might see, uh, oh, I'm going to take some of guesses here, averages of minus 10 Celsius. I'm going to have to speak in Celsius here. And uh, the coldest we usually get is about minus 20 Celsius, which gets pretty cold. Um, you know, and about zero to, you know, low one to five degrees is probably about as warm as we'd get in a, in a warm spell in December through February. So it, it gets cold enough, yeah. um, but it's not too bad. The last few years have been a bit different, a lot less snow, um, and we've had some really mild winters, uh, although they're telling us that uh, this one's going to be more of a normal winter. And that's made some changes in insect pressures, things like that, especially in the fruiting zones where those insects aren't dying as much. Now, are you guys also doing fruit crops, or are you strictly vegetables? Uh, for the most part, we're strictly vegetables. Um, we've dabbled in a little bit of strawberries. Um, this never gone well, so we pretty well you know, took that off the plate. We do some melons, um, just you know, to give something extra to our CSA customers. But uh, yeah, we're, you know, we, do, we call ourselves a strictly a vegetable farm, and then we raise five pigs twice a year, and we have some chickens. But that's just there for our on-farm uh, manure program. And the region that you're in, is it a, a primarily a vegetable-producing region? I mean, you called it the Niagara Region Fruit Belt. Is that what's dominating that area, or is it different kinds of agriculture there? Uh, there's, there's a wide variety. It's very dominated um, by grapes, uh, and it is tending to lean more towards grapes as time goes on. Farmers are pulling tree fruits. Uh, all the good soil, I would say, is, is mostly dominated by uh, 
vineyards, orchards, some nurseries. Uh, and then there's a scattering of cash crop farms here and there. Further south of us, you know, 10, 15 minutes, the soil gets more clay-based. So that's a lot more cash crop farms. And there is the odd vegetable farm like us. There's not a lot of really big ones. Uh, those are all more towards uh, Simcoe Way, so, you know, hour and a half or two away from here. But uh, I think probably land is typically too expensive here for larger vegetable operations. With the four acres or so in production and the, the 100 CSA members and the, and the farmer's market, are you guys making a living on the farm? Yeah, I would say we are. Um, this is probably this is my first year being full-time farming. Um, before this, I worked as a machinist for a local university building scientific equipment and uh, for the professors. So that was our time to sort of get the farm going off the ground. And uh, yeah, I made the decision in the spring to farm full time. And, you know, we're not making a middle class income, or at least on paper we're not, but we're making a comfortable income for us. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussions I've seen before where people talk about you can't just base the farming income off pure numbers. There's a lot of other benefits that aren't written down on paper, and we certainly, certainly realize those as well. But yeah, to answer that question simply, I would say, yes, we're making a living at it. And your wife, Amanda, is she full-time on the farm as well? Yeah, so she's been, um, we started technically in 2010. Um, and she's been the full-time farmer since then. So she's always been the one uh, on the farm full-time. Um, over time, our roles have sort of uh, gone to where she handles harvesting, packing, going to market, you know, dealing with the CSA customers. My role has really become uh, field planning, field prep, uh, planting, and weeding. So I get things from concept to harvestable and she takes it from harvest to market and that just naturally happened uh, with us and it also worked well because uh, that was the kind of work I could also do in the evenings or weekends or here and there as opposed to having to be the, the regular guy all the time. Right. They are both our strengths in those areas and we both enjoy them so in terms of the partnership in the farm between my wife and I that breakdown has worked really well for us. Now four acres isn't interesting scale to be farming at. And I'd say that not a lot of the guests that I've had on the show are doing four acres. There's a lot of people doing two or less, and there's a lot of people doing 10 or more. Why are you guys farming four acres and how does that work for you? Yeah. So I've always wanted to farm in the back of my mind, 10 to 20 acres. It seemed fun. Um, so one reason is, is land in Niagara is hard to come by. Um, especially where I am. There's a lot of pressures from nurseries and other growers for rental land. It's very expensive to buy, which is why we only own a very small home farm. Um, another reason is it seems to be the scale uh, with the right level of mechanization where my wife and I can pretty well handle it um, with only minimal uh, assistance from employees or um, things like that. We We've used uh, some apprentices in the past few years, often one, maybe two in the summer. We're moving away from that, I think, a little bit uh, more towards having a single-paid student employee in the summer. Um, but at, at four acres, using mechanical cultivation, um, we can provide uh, 
a wide range of vegetables. So a lot of people who grow on, on one acre, Jean Martin, um, they won't produce things like squash, potatoes, sweet potatoes, because they just take too much room. Um, especially because we run a winter CSA, those are the kind of crops that uh, our customers want. We all need to be at that at that four acre scale. So the way I like to think about it is we run our home farm um, in a very intensive system. We still use row cropping um, at 15 in the summers. We, we farm like uh, Augusta as Jason Weston uh, does. In fact, a year ago, uh, I saw a picture of his farm and wondered how he did it, and that inspired me to wander down the, the Planet Junior Road. But, uh, yeah, so we farm our home farm very intensively, multiple locations. That's where we grow our lettuce and uh, onions, tomatoes, those kind of things. And then the rental farm, because it's far away, we tend to farm there with uh, much bigger row cropping stuff. Like that's our potatoes, our squash, our sweet potatoes. And everything from planting to harvesting on a lot of those crops is uh, as mechanized as we can. And we just bring in uh, groups of volunteers or people when we need the extra work for harvesting. Uh, every fall for potatoes and sweet potatoes, we have a two Saturdays. And we get a big group of volunteers out. They look forward to it every year. Some of them can't uh, have Thanksgiving without it. And then we uh, get on the harvester and we do big potato and big sweet potato harvests and have a big lunch feast. And it's really turned into a little mini community event for us. I'm interested when you say get on the harvester, are you actually mechanically harvesting your potatoes? Yes. I wouldn't grow potatoes without mechanically harvesting them. Uh, not, not it. If I was growing a few of them, it'd be one thing. Um, we harvest about five ton of potatoes and another five ton of sweet potatoes. I would grow more if I had more land. But uh, yeah, so we, we plant them with uh, a mechanical transplant or a Holland planter. You can get like bulb planting shoes for those, the carousel type planters. Okay. And uh, then we cultivate with a, a farm all A, and then we harvest with a tractor and uh, a mechanized harvester, and specifically one that people can ride on. Uh, I don't like the idea of harvesting potatoes, spitting them out of the back of the machine, and then having to wander around uh, bending over picking up potatoes. So we harvest where people can be standing, um, and it's much quicker, better on the back, and uh, makes for a really enjoyable time. It's fascinating to me that you're doing that kind of a mechanical harvester on the scale of production that you're talking about. I think that's pretty unusual. Is that something where you've actually sat down and penciled that out as for return on investment for that piece of equipment, or is this just something where you're kind of going off of your preferences? Uh, a little bit of both. Yeah, I've, I've done cost of production on potatoes. It's one of the few crops I have done cost of production on. Um, I find it hard to do it on some things, uh, especially when it's uh, mostly my wife and I doing most of the work, and we don't have uh, you know, time management software for the two of us. But uh, owning a harvester like that, normally wouldn't be fully supported by uh, cost of production for only, say, 5,000 pounds. Um, two things that make it happen is, uh, one, I'm, I'm handy with building equipment, and that often makes that stuff cheaper. I also really like equipment. So even if I don't have a, a full-time use for it, I, I really like doing things as mechanized as possible. Um, one of the problems we had for years with just Amanda 
uh, working on the farm was that everything had to be done quicker because it was mostly just her, sometimes her and an employee, and everything I needed to do had to happen, you know, on a Saturday or in an evening. And so going very mechanized seemed like the right decision for us. So specifically, Ryan, how did that potato harvester make sense on your operation, besides just the, the fun part, the fact that you like having equipment and like the mechanization? The potato harvester made sense for us because we wanted to grow enough potatoes that we could supply our farmer's market as well as our, uh, our whole CSA almost all winter. And, you know, we could have hand-dug them or used one where we picked them up off the ground, but that would have taken a really long time. And for us, having a, the kind of harvester where we could harvest uh, 10,000 pounds in about four to six hours uh, really made sense for us. At the time, also, we were considering scaling up to almost a full acre of potatoes, and then that kind of equipment really starts to make sense. I find that mechanically harvesting potatoes makes it an enjoyable experience, and uh, it doesn't take too much out of me. You mentioned that you were an engineer building stuff for professors at the university, and and I've seen a lot of pictures of you working in your shop uh, as I've as I kind of followed you on Facebook and other places. I mean, tell me a little bit more about that. I mean, that's I I, I mean, what a fantastic skill set to have for a farmer. Yeah, so I, uh, yeah, I, I worked for uh, the local university, the Brock University, and uh, we had our machine shop at the university there, and our job was to uh, take ideas that professors had, um, sometimes written on a napkin, and turn them into a scientific apparatus that would function. So I'm a machinist by trade, and uh, I have some background in mechanical design. I don't have an engineering degree per se. Um, it's all been self-taught, and uh, I I really like building stuff. So um, as long as I can remember from the farm, I've always been uh, custom building my own farm equipment. Um, before I even heard of Jean Martin, I had built my own raised bed maker, and uh, someone used to grow on raised beds. Moved away from that about a year ago, and I have found it to be uh, both a blessing and a curse at times. Um, because I can build things, I find sometimes I spend too much time building things on the farm um, and not enough time actually farming out in the field. Um, although I've made a promise to myself for 2018, that will change. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it's put me in a unique position where I'm able to very cost-effectively build and trial uh, farm equipment for myself, things to speed up the processes, um, improvements. I also build and uh, or design and build farm equipment for other small farms in the area. Um, I've done some undercutters, things like that, and uh, I, I really enjoy doing that. It's a nice little sort of side hobby thing for me in winter. And uh, and, and what it means for me is that I can fairly risk-free um, build things and, and try equipment, as opposed to being on the other side of the fence where if I'm looking at buying a potato harvester like that. I did buy this one most from another farmer, but I'm building a brand new one this winter. Um, you know, instead of having to spend probably for something like that five to ten thousand, I can I can buy it for probably a you know a quarter to a half of that, and uh, that that makes it very cost effective for me to own some of the things that I do. 
Um, although I'm always looking for ways at how I can build these for other farmers and also be cost effective because I know the struggles. So you mentioned the undercutter and, and of course the potato harvester. What are some of your other favorite tools that you've built on the farm or, or things that you feel are really different than what you might have been able to go and buy off the shelf? Um, I mean, a big one, and you can't buy it off the shelf anymore, are those Planet Junior cultivators, um, which, you know, like Jason Weston had mentioned, the two-wheel cultivating tractor, and being able to build the tooling for them that no longer exists. And uh, I don't have my systems dialed in like, like he would, but uh, I can see how they will completely change the farming landscape for us, especially in sort of the staffing position we're in. Where, uh, as most farms our size would have multiple employees, we, we effectively do it with, you know, maybe one. And uh, so there's that. I also, uh, I built my own flame reader. I, I use purchase components, but I designed the system as a tractor-mounted unit. Uh, I used liquid propane. That was fun. And uh, I've done a lot of reading on a, a technique called false cultivating or stale seedbed cultivating with uh, very shallow precision control blood cultivation. Um, and I see a lot of benefits to that over flame weeding even. And so this one of my top projects is uh, building that system. Um, so that's the, the one nice thing I can do is I can experiment. And if something doesn't work, I can tweak it. If I don't like it, uh, I can turn it into something different. So I had built a false cultivator for our farm all this summer, and it didn't work that good. But now I can turn it into a, sort of a three-point mount type of implement and, and keep moving forward. Kind of repurpose the mistakes that you've made. and Yeah, well, we don't like to call them mistakes. <laughs> Re -re repurpose the learning opportunities that you've had. There you, there you go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> You mentioned that you had gone from raised beds to not raised beds this year. So could you tell us a little bit more about how you're actually getting the work done with the tractors on your farm? How are you getting the tillage done? How are you getting those fields and rows and beds laid out? Yeah, for sure. So um, we're still in the figuring out learning stage there. Um, typically in the past, uh, our, both of our farms were set up for tractor access, and I had a, a raised bed maker I had built, and on the back of it was a, a big wheel with spikes. We called it the Wheel of Doom. And uh, as I made the raised bed, it made all the dimples. It marked out a 6 by 6 grid on the bed, and we could pick where we wanted to hand plant. And uh, that worked okay. We, we did try a really nice, uh, I think it's that's called a carousel planter, where it spins with the cups that open. Yep. Um, we, we had one of those. Didn't work for us. Uh, we grow so few of any one thing, it needed to be set up all fancy every time for everything. And this year we switched to a paper pot transplanter and a stand and plant. Um, and then uh, this is our seed drill. So we always did the raised beds. I didn't like the raised beds. It was an awful lot of hand work for us, a lot of hoeing. Um, the shoulders on the raised beds, if you, if you tried to be too mechanized, would disappear and fall into the ground. Uh, and we're on very sandy soil, so our raised bed has some really good drainage advantages for heavy soils. In our soil, it actually made it even drier, which was always a problem. So I was on the hunt for different uh, 
you know, weed control solutions, looking for ideas, and came across a picture of Jason Weston's farm and his claims of no hand weeding, and I was pretty impressed. And so midwinter last year, we rejigged the entire farm. So we replanned everything, went from uh, a bed system to a row system, which uh, didn't really decrease our yields. One problem we were always having with the raised bed system was because it was so much hand labor for us to try and weed, say, carrots. Um, one would almost have to bed, just didn't have enough time. But with row cropping, although the density is down a little bit, our yields are, are up because we can, you know, we can really control those weeds. So now our home farm is set up not for tractors anymore. We made the headlands very small. In between every section, we put a row running perpendicular, and our goal there is to put flowers and other beneficials to attract beneficial insects or berries, that kind of stuff. We do have a, a BCS rototiller, and typically we've always prepared the fields by you know, disking, cultivation, rototilling, spading, it all depended on what it needed. I'm really, really trying to get away from the rototiller. It's so easy to use, you know, it just makes that, that really beautiful seed bed. But I'm just not happy with, with the, what it does to the soil. So I'm trying to build and scale equipment where we can prepare the soil with more of a false cultivator that makes a very nice seed bed in the top one or two inches. You know, then we'll go through and we'll either uh, hand transplant with a stand-in plant, we'll uh, use the paper pot transplanter, or uh, the seed drills, and then we can get in with our Planet Junior cultivators and finger leaders and really keep those uh, weeds under control from there. And again, that, that all, being able to use that Planet Junior cultivator and, and the system that you're talking about really being a function of not doing those raised beds anymore because that's what really gives you the ability to get in there with that Planet Junior? I wouldn't be able to use those on a raised bed. Um, it just it would fire off on the one side and it wouldn't track straight. And uh, I have since forgotten some of the reasons why we moved away from raised beds, but I do remember there were more. Um, I just was not happy with the system in our, in our own situation. Lots of people make really great use of them. Um, but in our own situation, at the scale we're trying to operate at, we, uh, we just don't have the, the workforce for that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, crops like potatoes and sweet potatoes really don't work well on a permanent raised bed system. You need so much soil disturbance. Um, to do it at the scale that we're at, um, you know, so our motor farm, it's, you know, all three, four foot row spacings, things that full size tractors can fit in. Um, and I'm very heavy on the tractors for the size I am. Um, I think at one point I had six or seven. Oh, really? But, uh, no, I, I grew up with tractors. My dad's a farm equipment mechanic. And uh, I just, I really love tractors. We, we've changed the few things this year. We're, we're scaling down in the numbers, but uh, it'll always be something that uh, I really like having. Um, plus, for the, the rental farm, I'm a big believer in having cultivation tractors set up and, and, and left that way. So we have uh, two, we've had three, but now we're down to two farm all super A tractors. Uh, and the goal is to have them both set up differently. I just bought an LSG this year, and we're going to see if we can set that up for uh, carrots and beets, that kind of stuff. Then I have, the moment, two Ford, older Ford tractors from the 80s. We have a, a new Kubota older tractor and a Farmall H. And maybe some other tractor kicking around somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> 
interesting to me that you've got a whole fleet of older tractors and then the new Kubota. Right. What made you jump in on the new Kubota instead of just going for another used tractor? Yeah, so back in, I think it was 2013, we were still using the Massey 135 um, for most of our, our farming. And it was really a great tractor, but hard to steer, no power steering, and it didn't have a loader, that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, looking at tractors, the, the reality is with the used tractor market is uh, I can go buy a brand new Kubota for probably four or 5000 more than a used one. Um, it has the full warranty, and you know, you talk about on-farm debt, but they're, they're giving 0% financing. It's free money in, in a way. You just have to pay it back. And it, it just, it gave us the loader tractor. It gave us the maneuverability we needed. You know, it had a nice modern uh, sway bar setup. Uh, the Massey 135 only had a, a solid sway bar. You couldn't do too much with it. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, we had that. Then we bought our Ford 1710 to match up with the Kubota. They're the same size tractors. And for a while, we used those two. And then just uh, a couple months ago, maybe a month ago now, uh, my realized our tractors were a little bit small sometimes for the kind of stuff we were doing uh, with potatoes. The 1710 was working pretty hard on that potato harvester and wet ground that couldn't quite pull it. Um, and with undercutting, um, I, I needed a tractor where I could lift a skid of uh, harvested carrots and only have an undercutter on the back. I needed more rear weight. So I actually sold our 2012-2013 Kubota. We're selling the 1710 and we bought another slightly larger 40-horse Kubota. And uh, we're sort of now, this winter is all about uh, fine-tuning all of our equipment, making changes so that we can farm exclusively with that as our main tractor. We have a really small 1310 to do little things, and then our fleet of cultivation tractors. And, uh, you know, a little bit of that Ben Hartman lean farming thing where maybe it's good to have a couple less tractors, but more, you know, make sure everything fits together. A little bit hard for me to give up tractors, but it, it seems like it's going to be the right decision. <laughs> Painful, but, but, uh, but okay in the end. Yeah. You know, I think when you talk about trading up those tractors and, and you know, kind of doing doing a little bit of horse trading there and, and moving things around and getting rid of stuff, it's it's something that I always think is so important to keep in mind when you're buying something like a tractor, whether you're paying cash for it or financing, is that it, it is an asset, right? It retains its value. And, you know, I'm willing to bet that when you sold that 2013 Kubota, you probably didn't get a whole lot less for that than what you paid for it. No, I didn't, and, and that's the thing. If you, you know, I not to make this a sales pitch for a Kubota or anything, but you know, I bought a Kubota because I knew it was going to be a good tractor, and that if I ever needed to sell it, and I, I assumed I would own it for thirty years, but clearly that didn't happen. Um, it, it retained, you know, a lot of value, and I, I sold it to somebody, I think, for a fair price, but it, it still. Uh, you know, it didn't cost me that much to own it for the five years. And now upgrading to a newer, much more expensive Kubota, it's probably going to be the same thing, I would suspect. Um, they really, like, hold their value. And uh, I, I think it's, it's one thing we often get scared to do, 
is to uh, take a little bit of a financial risk. You know, it's, it's costing me more to buy this new Kubota, but what it's costing me is going to be more than offset by the benefits it's going to bring. And that's a really important lesson to remember uh, in, in spending money is, is that, you know, a little bit of debt is okay if it's well thought out and, and placed in the right spot. Um, and I've never been afraid to make investments um, that I know are going to uh, typically make a good return on the investment in the short term or long term. Um, once in a while you make a mistake, but you try not to make ones that are too big. Um, and I'd say at this point in the game, we sort of have a pretty good idea of the benefits that an investment like the, the Kubota uh, is going to make. Um, you know, when I talk to other farmers about winter farming, and their, their big complaint is, well, I don't have anywhere to uh, store vegetables. We, we just can't store that much. Um, well, we made the decision uh, a few years ago to, you know, again, with borrowed money, to build a, you know, a brand new, not not too big, but 24 by uh, 48 barn. And uh, it's a two-story barn. And we have now in here the capacity for vegetable storage all winter. Um, we have a storefront we're building. We have a wash pack space in there. And, uh, you know, without in investments like that, uh, I wouldn't have been able to operate what I think is a very successful uh, winter vegetable program. And uh, those decisions obviously need to be uh, weighed and you need to uh, know you can sort of pay that back. But uh, I, I think um, if, we're, if we're to be successful at what we're doing, we need to make sure we're constantly making these investments, always upgrading, trying to improve ourselves just a bit here and there. And uh, hopefully, in the end, uh, that pans out into something. Um, so I, I've never been afraid to invest in, in infrastructure, in capital, because I, I know what, what it will pay off in the long run. Tell me a little bit more about the structure that you put up for doing the winter wash and packing and the storage. Yeah, so uh, we, we built it ourselves, my dad and I. And uh, it's just uh, it's 24 feet wide. 48 feet long, like I said. Um, it's a stick frame structure, uh, 16 foot tall walls. At the time when we built it, I had assumed it would always be big enough. Obviously, almost too big, and I've since realized that's not true. But uh, we're kind of stuck with where we, how many size of buildings we can put where we are. So the, the main floor now is divided into uh, sort of two or three sections. We're building a 16 by 12 uh, store uh, for vegetable sales that can be expanded into a 16 by 24 if we ever need. And the other, the other bit of the L shape is uh, it's not it's not really concrete what it's used for yet, but part of it is for our wash pack area, part of it is for our uh, potato and sweet potato storage. Um, we typically harvest those into 700 pound bins and they need a pretty sturdy floor to be able to uh, move around on because we stack them floor high. And then we store our, uh, all the other stuff in, we have a cold storage we built and then we have room upstairs for uh, things like squash, uh, that kind of stuff. And uh, one thing we did when we spec'd this building was to make sure the floor upstairs was spec'd heavier than they normally would so that we could actually run a a pallet truck up there and uh, move pallets around. So that, that was a big benefit doing that. 
Uh, it doesn't even cost that much more to do when you want to think about where all the expenses go in building a barn to upgrade your floor to something that can take a lot more weight is actually quite minimal in the, uh, in the long run and makes it very convenient now when we need extra space. And how do you get the squash up there? Uh, we have a big door. Well, not a big. It's five by seven at the back. And uh, we managed to find ourselves a forklift that just about runs. And it will lift... Uh, we, we put them on the squash on greenhouse carts. Uh, I have a lot of greenhouses around us. And we like a four-wheeled cart, usually about two feet wide, five feet long, with shelves you can adjust the height on. They're all galvanized. So now they foam down on each shelf. Uh, we'll squash it, and I'll just forklift them upstairs. Uh, it makes that job really easy so we don't have to carry it all, all up there. Nice. And, uh, yeah, it, it's a really, really slick way that that works. I think vertical space is something that it's really easy to ignore the value of. I was actually just talking to a friend of mine today about packing shed design. That's something we were discussing is if you go into most commercial warehouse spaces, they're really tall. And those those guys are making use of, you know, sometimes five or six macro bins stacked on top of each other. Um, you know, if you're if you're in a vegetable warehouse or or if you're looking at even just the shelving in a, in a conventional warehouse or even in a Costco and oftentimes 20, 24 feet tall. And I think it's something we oftentimes ignore is how inexpensive it can be to put stuff up high. Yeah, so in our case, the, the ceiling downstairs is only, say, nine feet, something like that. But often people, when they build a barn, will just stop there and put the roof on. Uh, but I'm a big believer in, if, you know, obviously the building code will allow it, I always put a, a second story on there because it costs almost not that much more to build another bit of well uh, to put a floor in and you suddenly doubled your, your space. And uh, so, I mean, we built, uh, I believe it was last year, we had a floor, we built an 8 by 12 cold storage with a cool bot. On, you know, on top of that, I built a second, uh, second floor. It's a really tall building for how, how big it is. But, uh, you know, that gave me the ability to put even more storage space uh, above it. And uh, we like to store a lot of winter vegetables. In the, in the past, we always, uh, like with carrots and things like that, we covered them with straw, you know, that Elliot Coleman method for winter. And uh, that worked okay, but it was a little bit laborious uh, digging, especially for my poor wife, digging through all that straw and snow in winter to dig up carrots. And, and now we're trying to move towards storing the carrots, uh, pre-dug, you know, digging with the undercut or really speeding that up. And uh, so we really need to make sure our, we have enough storage for that. And it's, it's nice now to have the storage on farm and to control it. And it's always there when you need it. Another option would be for people is to, uh, and maybe this is specific to my region, but there's a lot of cold storages from fruit farms that aren't used in winter. Um, and that's always been sort of an option to store things. Um, you just need to make sure you have the, the ability to transport it back and forth. Um, but that might be something that people aren't thinking about or utilizing. Um, or the people that might be in areas that have bigger farms that shut down for winter. We actually utilize some off-site storage on my vegetable farm at Rock Spring Farm that was two hours away, but it was on our delivery route. And so we were able to take it all up there. We actually hired somebody to haul all of the bins of carrots up there. And then we were able to stop on the way home from the Twin Cities and pick up a couple of bins of carrots at a time, bring those home, wash them up, ship them out, 
you know, again, taking our delivery truck up and shipping them out and then pick up some more on the way home to clean for the next week. It worked out really well for us. With the winter share, are you also doing greens and stuff like that out of your high tunnels? No, uh, this, this year uh, we didn't have quite as many as we had hoped to. Um, but typically, uh, so we have four hoop houses that are 20 by 100, 20 foot wide, 100 foot long. They're unheated. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll typically do things like lettuce, salad greens, um, spinach in those, maybe some Swiss chard, the kind of green stuff that just won't make it past December. And uh, that's a, it's a big boost for winters to be able to have the, those greens. I mean, baskets can get pretty uh, brown brown and orange looking, but you just throw one thing on top that has some green in it, and uh, it totally changes the way a basket looks. So we put them in a year ago now, those hoop houses. We had much smaller ones before that, maybe a couple of them. Uh, one of them still needs to be skinned. They're going to be a big benefit and a big change to us. We grew cucumbers in the one this summer. It was our first foray into uh, protected culture. And, and that was a really good experience. We made a lot of mistakes. But uh, despite that, those cucumbers produced better than any cucumber we've ever had. Um, and so for this next year, we're probably moving all of our pepper, cucumber, tomato, and melon cropping to more exclusively uh, under protected culture, just given the, the benefits that we saw. I think especially with the amount of land that you have available, it sure makes sense to make use out of that protected culture and the kinds of increased yields that you really can realize there. Well, oh, for sure. And I mean, we, uh, you know, our home farm here, we probably have 1.2 acres, roughly, uh, in usable land. And we try not to farm the other farm in uh, in winter, just so we don't have to go over there. And, and you know, having that 8,000 square feet of, of hoop house space, um, you know, that can produce... Uh, I'm not maybe saying almost as much as the rest of the farm is an exaggeration, but it's amazing what we can cram in there and how much faster and better it grows. Um, and, you know, we're still really trying to figure out our, our hoop house systems. We haven't nailed those down yet. But, I mean, our general idea would be, uh, you know, starting soon, we might start planting more stuff into them and uh, get a really good spring crop. So I'm always trying to find that way to get vegetables in March and April. Um, and those hoop houses, I think, are going to be one of our tickets. And then planting in such a way that it's easy just to transition as best as we can into the, the tomatoes and other things, and then right from there transition into the, uh, the, the sort of fall, winter uh, leafy greens. So typically in our climate with tomatoes, um, we've got that ground where we planted tomatoes tied up all season. That's all you'll grow there. Um, but using protected culture, I can essentially get three crops, if not more, out of the same amount of space. All right. With that, Ryan, I think this is a good spot for us to stop, take a break, get a word from a couple of sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Ryan Thiessen of Creek Shore Farms in St. Catharines, Ontario. Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast is provided by Vermont Compost Company, organic growers since 1992. In the transplant greenhouse, all of your investment in plant materials, heat, labor, and overhead all depends on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do. It has to produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest ingredients I could to make my potting soil. And later, 
I focused on finding cheap potting soil already put together. But what I found is what so many farmers have, that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer at Vermont Compost can tell story after story of customers who switch to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soils and the great plants that they grow. Feed the soil. VermontCompost.com The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also brought to you by BCS America. BCS two-wheel tractors are often mistaken for just a rototiller, but it is truly a superior piece of farming equipment. Engineered and built in Italy where small farms are a way of life, BCS tractors are built to standards of quality and durability expected of real agricultural equipment, the kind of dependability that every farm needs. I have worked with BCS tractors for over 25 years, and I wouldn't consider anything else for my small tractor needs. I am not the only fan. More than 1.5 million people in 50 countries have discovered the advantages of owning Europe's most popular two-wheel tractor. And these really are small tractors with the kinds of features found on their four-wheeled cousins and a wide variety of equipment. Power harrows, rotary plows, flail mowers, snow throwers, sickle bar mowers, chippers, log splitters, and more. Check out bcsamerica.com to see photos and videos of BCS in action. bcsamerica.com All right, and we're back with Ryan Thiessen from Creekshore Farms in St. Catharines, Ontario. So, Ryan, with your CSA, something I thought was interesting is that you guys do on-farm pickup, but you also do home delivery of the CSA boxes. Yeah. So I, when you started our CSA in 2010 or 2011, I think we only did farm pickup. Then somebody got the idea, probably me, to uh, start offering home delivery. And uh, especially for winter, I think maybe winter was where it spurred that on. A lot of people don't like to drive in winter. You know, offering home delivery uh, opened up a huge market for us. There were a few things we did for our CSA that really helped boost our numbers. Um, one of them definitely was uh, adding home delivery. Um, so until now, we've always charged uh, 375 a week, which is pretty cheap. And I get that number just because it's uh, $60 for a 16-week home delivery. We're upping that next year. Uh, we've always done it in plastic bags. We're moving now to cardboard boxes. Yeah, we just started doing that. And the response has been uh, really good from our customers. Um, just making that change, even building it into the price, um, it just gives you that much more of a professional-looking product. Um, I've run the numbers on the home delivery at that price, and uh, it's enough to pay for the fuel and to pay... Uh, say 15 bucks an hour, which is just above the minimum wage here. And uh, so it seems like it might be sustainable, but we'll see. Um, one of the justifications for it is that if we have to stand around for, you know, two, three hours uh, while people pick up their CSA baskets, um, what's, the, what's the big difference if we're spending that time driving? The part that's probably not sustainable for us, and only works because I'm still fairly young, is that, uh, say for instance, this morning I did 34 home deliveries. So I was awake at 2.30 in the morning, and I delivered from 3 a.m. to 8 a.m. all over the Niagara Peninsula. And in summer I do nearly 40-something home deliveries, but in the month, say about the same amount of time. Um, increasing deliveries doesn't increase time that much. 
um, are we doing increasing your uh, delivery density? Typically, we have a map that we deliver to. Um, and certainly, those 2 a.m. mornings are probably the part that's not sustainable. So we're, I'm seriously contemplating in the next year or two looking at hiring that out to somebody who can do it in the evening. Um, as opposed, I don't want to make anyone else do that in the morning. Uh, <laughs> I have really had trouble letting go. Right. Um, uh, I know when I deliver the box that it, it is, it's there, it's delivered. Um, I, I need to learn sometimes to let go of things and that other people, you know, will do all right. <laughs> yeah. Although home delivery is something I've seen a lot of farms struggle with when they've tried to, to delegate that to somebody other than the farmer. I mean, it really does yeah. change things. So. Um, the home deliveries work great for us. Um, it, it accounts for probably 40 to almost 50% of our CSA sales, um, depending on the time. You know, it's it's uh, a lot of people really like getting it. Uh, the time of day I do it at means I don't get to see the customers usually, and there's always that face-to-face connection we talk about. So I don't know, you know if uh, attrition rates are higher with that. i not as good always at remembering to run those numbers. Um, but we have a lot of people who return year after year after year, and I don't think they've ever met me. And uh, they just really like that their baskets are there when they wake up. Their kids get excited, you know. Every Thursday morning, there's a box at the door with all these new exciting fresh vegetables. And, uh, yeah, it, it's worked well for us. It's one of our niches. There's a, a couple other farms in the area that might be home delivery to do it a little bit differently. Uh, we've purposely tried to keep that price low to make it uh, affordable to people. What kind of a delivery vehicle are you using for that? Uh, 2014 Dodge Caravan. Okay. Grand Caravan. I, I couldn't think of, honestly, a better vehicle. Um, it happens to be also the vehicle we use for everything else. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we have that, and we have a big, uh, uh, like a Grumman parcel van that we use for heavier hauling if we need to. But it's not so good for home deliveries. It's a little slow. And I suppose doing so, doing those deliveries in the middle of the night also makes sure that that product's as cool as it's going to be coming out of your coolers and then going to your customers. Yeah, in in, in summer certainly it helps it with cooler. In winter, you get the opposite where it's maybe too cold sometimes. Um, I mean, you know, you get minus fifteen. You deliver that box at four a.m. and the person doesn't get it till seven. You really start wondering what it looks like uh, after three hours. Never had any, we always did that with just plastic bags. The stuff was exposed. So that was another reason we switched to the cardboard boxes is uh, I think it'll give us that just that little bit of extra um, insulation against the elements. Um, you know, plus we're always looking at those companies like uh, I think down there's the Blue Apron and things like that and how they're doing their packaging. Um, and while I wouldn't say they're direct competition with us, they're definitely spending the marketing dollars. And uh, so we've actually tried a couple of the boxes just to see what it is they're doing and trying to sort of capitalize on the money they spend. And, and certainly having a really professional-looking cardboard box, um, no, it's just a cardboard box, but it, it's about the perception people have when they get it. It's not just this bag on their porch anymore. Now it's a packaged-up cardboard box, and we're going to get a nice stamp for it and brand those boxes. And... Uh, you know, we had one customer email us this morning. It was our first time getting a box, and they absolutely loved it. It was easier to pick up, and it just had that professional look to it. And, and that's really important for us 
is that uh, what we're doing comes across professionally. Yeah, you're. I mean, you're trying to. I don't know. We used to call it just being in it to win it. Even when we were just getting started on our farm, we worked really hard to develop the perception that we had been around for a long time and we were going to be around for a long time. And that we, you know, we cared enough to develop the image of a professional farming operation. We worked really hard to uh, sort of to brand ourselves as, as a professional farm. It worked good for us for a while, actually, that we were a new farm. People were really excited to support a young, new farm. Um, that was one angle. Um, but after a while, you're not that young, new farm anymore, and you really need to work at letting people know you're established, you're here to stay, and, and that you have this really professional appearance that people want to be a part of, um, that your stuff looks clean. That's one thing we've struggled with, is always making sure our product is clean enough and looks clean. I mean, people people know they're, they're buying farm-fresh, organic food from us, um, but there's still that perception that we've all grown up with, that you know that pepper has to look a certain way and things have to be a certain amount of clean. Um, soil rock is terrible for that. There's just no way to clean that thing. We <laughs> um, <laughs> seem to be forgiving. Uh, I mean, we used to give out, but uh, eat the brush to dirt off the potatoes as best we could. We didn't have a good way of cleaning them. And I had one customer, a friend of mine. And he, I don't know what he was thinking. He didn't realize that he needed to wash the potatoes, and he ate them like that. Yeah. Um, with the same, yeah, I, I don't know. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so we're, we're trying to get now to the point where we don't have incidences like that. That's the only incidents I know of. Um, and he's my friend, so it's funny. But um, I don't want to have that professional look. So with the store we're building, you know, it's not just a, a roadside stand. It, you're going to come in. It's going to be a really professional-looking store, and, and people are going to, I'm hoping, are going to want to come to it. It's it's small, but we we really put uh, our efforts into it. And the store is um, we're actually changing our CSA for farm picket completely around um, because of this store. How are you going to be changing that? Yeah. So. Um, we've typically done the CSA style where uh, I, I call it, you get what I give you. Um, you know, we'll have nine items that week and, and that's what you get. You might have a swap box. Um, but because uh, we're, we're doing this store, um, we're going to stop going to the Well and Farmers Market. So that spurred the store. We at the same time thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool uh, if we used uh, a gift card style? Um, there's other names for that. Um, so, so Square is a credit card payment processor. They have really nice gift cards you can get. And so it's still a CSA in the sense where people will prepay for a discount to support our farm in the time of, uh, you know, when we're having all these expenses. But then they'll be able to come to the farm, and instead of a two-hour window once a week, we're going to be open four days a week for probably five hours at a time. And, and they can come in and buy whatever they want. Uh, going to be a learning curve for us for sure, but uh, yeah, and I, I know for a fact we've lost CSA customers over the years who really want to support us, but it just doesn't work for them having to take, you know, what we give them, and we try really hard to balance it, but you know, you'll get the customers who two pounds of potatoes a month is too much, and the same next customer in is two pounds a week isn't enough, um, and this will really let us customize that. Uh, for all of our customers. And certainly that, that pickup window uh, increasing to four days or not having to worry about missing a box. 
we, we sort of informally polled a lot of our customers, and every single one of them is really excited about this. Our home delivery will still be, you get what I give you. Uh, we're just not set up to do customization there. But uh, we're really excited about this change. Right on the About Us page of your website, you talk about donating a significant portion of your production to a local food bank. Yeah, that's something we've, uh, we've always tried to do. We don't always get to the, I think we list 15%, and we try really hard to get there. It, we've had two sort of crazy weather years in a row, so we don't always do that. Uh, what, what spurred that on is before we started farming in 2009, um, we were youth of our, our youth group at church, and we had a, a big garden at the house we were renting. And we did that whole garden with the youth group uh, for the food bank. And uh, that sort of, um, when we wrote up our first business plan, we purposely put in there that we were going to donate 15% of everything we grew to the food bank. And I'd say that's really been more of a, of a goal or a, a, a target that we like to do than, than as a hard and fast. It, it can be, there's times when it can be really hard to hit that. Um, we're going to make a, I'd like to make a really strong effort in 2018 um, to, to get a lot closer to that. And as we refine our equipment and things like that, it, it gets easier to get there. But that's always been a, sort of an undercurrent in our business is that we realize that, um, and it's becoming less true, but that we're more expensive often than the grocery store. And I think that's changing, especially in organic food. Uh, but we realize there are people who, for whatever reason, couldn't always afford to, to eat um, what we were growing. And we wanted to, in the best way we could, make that accessible to people. Um, we also early on took some tours of the local food bank, and they were showing us the kind of stuff that they often got donated um, in terms of fresh fruit and vegetables, and often it, it looked pretty, pretty sad. Um, so it was one of our important things that we decided was that we weren't going to just donate, you know, seconds and ugly vegetables. Like these people were going to get the, the same quality of vegetables that we were giving our CSA customers. And, you know, if we had lots of seconds, I'm, I'm not above sending that there too, but certainly making sure that we're sending some of that really good stuff along as well. Cause, um, I mean, I need to make a living, but I'm still a big believer that, um, eating, Good, healthy food is, is super important, um, and, and uh, more people need access to it. And is that something where you're working closely with the food bank to coordinate on what kinds of products they need or what their customers might prefer? Or is it really you guys working kind of with your own farm plan to come up with that? Yeah, I think in the past it's been working with our own farm plan to come up with that. Um, we've heard back from them a few times about things they would like or wouldn't like. We don't, we don't have a really close working relationship yet with them. That's something I'd probably like to work on. Um, I, I'd really like it in a, in a system where uh, they would come once a week and uh, we would have had a big volunteer work crew, harvest uh, all the extra stuff, and uh, there'd be a really good system for that. And we've been working to try and... Uh, develop a system like that. There was an organization here in Niagara called Garden of Eating, and uh, they were, they, uh, what they did was they would go to people's homes, and if you had an apple tree in your front yard and you weren't going to harvest it, um, they would come harvest it, uh, you would get a third, they would take a third, and a third would go to the food bank. 
and they were working with us on the farm too to come and, and harvest some of our stuff. And we were trying to figure out how to, uh, there were going to be some benefits to us in absorbing that. Um, but we've also found some difficulties yeah. with insurance. Um, right. The insurance being the one thing that uh, has, seems to kill some good ideas sometimes. Yeah. Often we, we have these really great ideas um, and it just doesn't work out. So for 2018, I, I think 2018 is really a year for us where we're, we're taking a look at, at what we're doing. We're staying really focused. Um, I had some problems with staying focused on farming in 2017 um, that made some things difficult. So one of the things with the food bank with that is uh, in, instead of trying to sort of absorb garden of eating, what I want to do is because our current farm insurance allows us to have volunteers on our own farm and the rental farm, is really cultivate that volunteer thing happening happening here. And rather than trying to manage off-site places, we'll just use the talents, what we're good at, which is growing vegetables, to grow more and, and hopefully uh, develop systems that allow us to donate more um, using uh, volunteer help. That, that, that one is really important, the volunteer help. We don't always have the time to harvest the extras, things like that, especially with the small crew that we are. Um, but there's a really great group of volunteers who we've worked with who are really excited to come out and, and uh, harvest, they'll even come out and, and weed if we need help. Um, just, you know, and if they know that a good chunk of this is going to the, the food bank, then then uh, they'll all be happy to come and help, and, and their vision is, is aligned with ours. Have the donations to the food bank been an important part of marketing? Do people come to you? Are they attracted to your farm because you're doing that? We, we, we never started out doing it for the marketing thing. Um, obviously, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, I mean, we're, we're trying really hard to help the community. People will, people will really like this. Um, and we've had a, a couple people who have helped us with volunteering or that kind of thing because we donate. But in terms of the marketing strategy, um, there's just nothing there, if I can put it that way. I think the majority of my customers um, I don't even maybe they don't even know that part, or uh, we don't uh, we don't really advertise it much beyond that spot on our website. I think we used to, but um, people more so care about the uh, the quality of their food, and maybe in the back of their mind they're happy we do that. But I think if we didn't do it, it wouldn't make a huge difference. In addition to you and Amanda and your employees, you've got a smaller member of the team as well. As you talked about Amanda working full-time on the farm over those years while you were working off the farm, I was, I, I, I had to think like, how does Sydney fit into your farming operation? I, I don't know why, as you were saying that, I got emotional. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, Sydney, yeah, she's, she's a great kid. She, uh, wants to always be part of the farm. We've tried to raise her um, but helping on the farm is just what she does. Um, Amanda is, she's an amazing, an amazing woman. I can't believe uh, what she does sometimes. How she, she harvests the entire winter CSA and everything by herself and often Sydney's uh, you know, crying around with her. Now Sydney goes to school um, but she's with us in the summer and you know, stays home maybe a day a week and on Saturdays. And uh, 
Yeah, with her, it's uh, we've just really tried to make it an important part of her life that that we. For us, farming isn't a career. Um, it's, it's who we are. We are farmers. That's a distinction I, I sometimes make. Um, and maybe sometimes I'm too much down that road. But uh, um, yeah, with her, that we are farmers, and this is what she do, and she's almost excited to help. At least 95% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, so when she was born, she was born in May, uh, right at the cusp of the season. I was lucky enough to take uh, nine months parental leave. It was still a bit of a struggle, um, especially since I'm not that good at harvesting. But uh, yeah, <laughs> we made it through that. And uh, you know, my, my my parents have been a help with that too. My mom would, would watch Sydney sometimes. But uh, yeah, I mean, I gotta put a big <laughs> big kudos out there to Amanda for uh, for managing all that. You're making me really think about this now. <laughs> <laughs> It's a good thing for us guys to keep in mind. Yeah, I mean, I, I look at Sydney, I mean, we've had, uh, I mentioned much earlier that, you know, we've used uh, apprentices in the past, or interns, whatever you want to call them, we call them apprentices. And I look at Sydney as someone who's on uh, a rather long-term apprenticeship. And uh, it's it's been kind of funny because there were times when she was, you know, even four, and she would see one of our other apprentices doing something, and, and she'd be... So the saying, well, no, you're doing that wrong. You're supposed to do it this way. And the girl always took it really well. Of course, she's cute. But, uh, <laughs> that, uh, yeah, I mean, so far she, she claims she wants to be a farmer, so I feel really proud about that. But, I mean, she is still only five and a half, so we'll see where it takes her. In a way, I couldn't imagine doing this without her now. I, I get to see a whole different side of farming with her around. It does, you know, it slows you down sometimes, but that's probably a good thing to not always be, you know, running that full throttle. And, you know, sometimes you'll see things through kids' eyes. Your farm name, Creek Shore Farms, it makes it sound like you're on a creek. And, and I've looked at the Google Maps, and there's no creek. <laughs> no, there's a ditch at the back. Um, and we actually picked that name at our old rental farm. We used to rent a, a farm before we bought this place in 2012, but uh, there's no creek there either. Uh, back when we were looking for a farm name, um, it's always a tricky one, picking a name, and uh, what was really important to us at the time, and it's still important, was local food and sort of being really almost hyper-local, that's maybe a bit extreme, but that kind of thing. And so the, the wine, since we're in a wine-growing region, that's a really popular thing. We're in the uh, Niagara Appalachian, they call it. And within the Niagara, there are sub-Appalachians, or sub-regions within Niagara. And uh, apparently, uh, every region has its own terroir, which is a, uh, you know, a wine a wine word, right? That, that really connects the wine you're drinking with the land. And, and we really wanted to, uh, to sort of draw on that. And so our farm at the time, and luckily we still are, happens to be in the Creek Shore sub-appellation of the Niagara region. One of our dreams was always to work with a, you know, a, a restaurant, maybe a meat supplier, and have this really super local meal. Um, and that dream, I, I think it's happened, but uh, it's not something we, we pursue. But that's where the name came from, is really trying to emphasize uh, that we're, we're local. And uh, I, I don't know what the that the branding has carried us that way. 
Uh, I don't know that most people would associate our area with Creek Shore. Um, it's a really uh, creaky wine term, but uh, it, it meant something to us. And at this point, people know who Creek Shore Farms is and that we are local and do produce local food. So I guess maybe it's worked, but yeah, that's where the name came from. But no, no creeks, um, just a, a ditch that I probably can't write a sailboat or a paper sailboat in. I've always wished, you know, that we could get the kind of cliqueiness around how carrots taste different in southern Ontario versus northeast Iowa versus central California that we get around wine, you know? I always thought that'd be nice. Well, man, I think that's what we were going for. And, and I'd certainly say there's a big difference carrots between southern Ontario and California. Um, I'm, usually, I'm usually not very... Um, I don't always toot, toot the farm's trumpet, but with the one thing I will do is always tell people how good our winter carrots are. Uh, that freestyle cycle um, that you know converts those starches into sugars just blows people's minds away when they eat them. And, and that's a really important marketing tool is those carrots in a way, um, especially if you can keep them around a long time in winter because they remind people how good you are uh, and, and that they don't have to go to the grocery store and eat firewood. <laughs> that was really mean. <laughs> Accurate, but mean. Okay, so with that, we're going to turn to our lightning round. First, we're going to get a quick word from one more sponsor. This lightning round and this episode of the Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by High Mowing Organic Seeds. When your livelihood depends on the quality of seeds, be confident in your investment. When you grow organically, you need to know that your seeds were selected to perform in organic conditions. High Mowing offers professional quality seeds grown by organic farmers for organic farmers. Visit High Mowing online to request a free copy of their 2018 seed catalog. Read about the company's mission and browse over 700 organic varieties, including tried and true market standards, all new high performance hybrids, and beloved heirlooms. Use the code F2FSEEDS when you purchase online or mention the code when you call to receive a 10% discount on purchases of $100 or more. Visit highmowingseeds.com slash farmer to farmer or call 866-735-4454 to get started. Ryan, what's your favorite tool on the farm? Uh, my favorite tool has to be the uh, Planet Junior cultivator uh, with the finger specifically, but all the tools for it, uh, just the, the time it saves in weeding is incredible. And, I mean, you already had cultivating tractors on the farm with the Super A's, and you bought a G. Where do the two-wheeled cultivating tractors fit in to your operation, and why are they such a boon for you? Uh, they're such, well, the farm A's are really set up for the, the large-scale crops with wide spacing, like potatoes and things like that. They're steering a little on the sloppy side. It's hard to control them in fine areas. Uh, the G they only bought just this summer. Uh, mostly for fun, um, and and yeah, it, it really for for all the smaller crops like the like the carrots and the lettuce and that kind of stuff. Uh, having those those planted juniors meant we could cultivate uh, all, all those crops that are so packed together that the the only thing we had before that was a wheel hoe, a hoe or hands, and uh, it opened up a whole new world of weeding for us. And I I can't emphasize enough 
uh, the difference it has made. When you stay on top of it, and I wasn't always that good at it this summer, but when you stay on top of it with finger readers, mineral cultivation, um, it goes from, uh, you know, now wondering how to cope with all the weeds to uh, a really enjoyable experience. What's your favorite crop to grow? Potatoes. I love, I love growing potatoes. Maybe it's because I do it all mechanized and I love equipment. Um, I just grind about, yeah, they're, they're a lot of fun and I, I love eating them, but uh, yeah. Now, when you're growing potatoes, I mean, are you focused on just pushing out a whole bunch of whites and yellows or do you do a bunch of off-type varieties as well? Yeah, when we first started, we grew 15 different kinds. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, and some of them were awful. Um, so we've we really switched to growing mostly Yukon Golds. That, that's just what people want. Um, and then some red potatoes and then a, a few russets. Uh, I will probably branch out. I'm part of a uh, potato participatory potato breeding program in Ontario um, with the Biota Seed Initiative. Uh, where we're growing potatoes uh, adapted to everyone's individual climate. Um, that's kind of fun. Uh, I may bring in other potatoes as it goes. Um, we don't grow big potatoes. Our potatoes are typically smaller than other people's potatoes. Uh, we don't irrigate, and that's part of, that's on purpose. We find it tastes better on irrigated. Um, yeah, I, I just really like growing potatoes. I, I would grow 20 acres of potatoes if I, if I thought I'd make a living at it. <laughs> <laughs> What's the farm mistake that you've learned the most from? The biggest mistake I've made on the farm um, has, has probably been uh, taking on too many side projects. Um, I really like building things and building farm equipment, um, and sometimes I spend way too much time doing that uh, and not enough time actually in the field engaged in the act of farming. And uh, that, was a, that was a really hard lesson to learn in 2017. Um, after I had left my day job, I assumed I'd have all the time in the world, for every project manageable uh and and that that just slapped me in the face and i i learned but you know that's what we're here for is we get to learn and, and try again and finally if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing what would it be so if i could go back in time and tell my beginning farmer um i, I would tell myself the anchor hoop house is better uh, <laughs> there's a good uh, one I mean, yeah. Back in the early days, um, we lost a lot of 16 by 50 hoop houses. We were really excited about the whole movable hoop house idea. And uh, and I thought I had gotten the anchoring down right, but I did not have the right fasteners. And we had uh, we had four of them blow away in, in one fall. And, and that was devastating. You know, lost those winter crops. Uh, I remember the, the one... It was flapping around. I took the tractor out there to anchor it. I hooked it on with straps. Uh, and then I ran all the way back to the barn to get the other tractor and save the other one. Drove the tractor around the corner. And the other tractor was just sitting in the middle of the field by itself. Uh, and, and the hoop house had, had blown away into the uh, pig pen. There were no pigs at the time. Um, it barely sacrificed itself upon the pig pen. And uh, wow, like hoop house anchoring. Man, I can't stress that enough. I've, I've had some... Some rough, rough incidences there. A poorly anchored hoop house will definitely give you more sleepless nights than just about anything else on a vegetable farm. Oh, for sure. I had to, uh, for the longest time after that, I couldn't sleep on windy nights. 
But uh, I mean, you learn, you learn lessons the hard way sometimes when you're young. And uh, yeah, but now these ones, they're not going anywhere. Ryan, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk with me. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 153 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. You can find the notes for this show at farmertofarmerpodcast.com by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Thiessen. That's T-H-I-E-S-S-E-N. The transcript for this episode is brought to you by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America. And by Osborne Quality Seeds, a dedicated partner for growers. Visit osborneseed.com for high-quality seed, industry-leading customer service, and fast order fulfillment. Additional funding for transcripts is provided by North Central SARE, providing grants and education to advance innovations in sustainable agriculture. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast right in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review, talk to us in the show notes, tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook. And hey, when you talk to our sponsors, please let them know how much you appreciate their support of this resource that you value. You can support the show directly by going to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash donate. I am working to make the best farming podcast in the world, and you can help. Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at farmertofarmerpodcast.com, and I will do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there, and keep the tractor running.